And I think ultimately, I am driven by responsible leadership and and outcomes for the end client or the end person, whether it's a student or whether it is the investor. You're listening to the Destiny Benders podcast. Girish is traveling this weekend, so I'm doing the intro by myself today. Our guest on the podcast for this episode took our breath away with what she's achieved in a relatively short amount of time and how many students have been positively impacted by her work. She's truly a destiny bender. Next week, the podcast will be coming to you from Washington, D.C., where Girish is attending AIEA. He'll be chatting with international educators there and hearing their stories. So tune in and look out for him if you're there too. And we're back. Welcome back to Destiny Benders, the podcast focused on international educators who are changing lives and bending destinies. Today's guest is Sanam Aurora. She's the founder and chairperson of the National Indian Students and Alumni Union in the UK. And we're excited to have you on the podcast today. I think that you've probably got a very interesting story to tell us, Sanam. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jessica. Very excited to be here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Welcome to the podcast, Sanam. So we haven't met. I don't know what you do or who you are, So, and neither do our listeners. So why don't we take it from the top and maybe tell us a little bit about your journey so far and how you ended up starting or founding this organization. Sure. So like many of us, I was an international student when I came over to the UK. I was born and brought up in Delhi, which is, of course, in India. Uh, came over to the UK a couple of years ago now. It's been a while, but I did a bit of my schooling here. So that's sort of sixth form. And then I took a gap year and then I went to university to do my undergrad where I was at the London School of Economics. Um, where I very quickly discovered what it went to be not such a smart student because everyone else is so much smarter than you. And it is there that I realized that actually, you know, we had this Indian society on campus, which had been going for many years as part of our students' union. And then I sort of got involved with that because I think once you're away from home, you realize how much you miss it. And, and you know, the festivals and the cultural stuff and the Bollywood and, and all that good stuff. And so sort of, sort of got involved with that. And that's when I also realized that actually two things had happened round about the same time. I'm, I'm sort of talking 2010-ish, which is one, I realized that actually I was running the LSE's India Society and across the road from me was King's College London with their India Society and a mile down was SOAS with theirs and, you know, so on and so forth. And actually, all of us were doing very similar things, but actually no one was bringing us together, which I thought was a bit of a gap in the market. But at the same time, something bigger was also happening, which is, as I'm sure many of your listeners and you guys will remember, the start of 2010 was not particularly a great time to be an international student in the UK because we were having all sorts of scandals break out one after the other, starting with, you know, the very infamous bogus college scandal, bogus student scandal, as it was called, where nearly a thousand universities and colleges were closed out um, with little to no regard for what that meant for the hundreds of thousands of international students and dependents and their families thereafter, you know, financially, emotionally, academically, professionally. And actually, 
because we were doing so much and we were in a position of privilege studying at let's say what is known as an elite university in our own cocoons you know doing all this india 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 stuff and actually there were thousands of students who were start you were know, reaching out many of them reaching out to us looking for help because they felt they didn't know where to go as a result of all of these um college closures and and university closures so actually we felt how is it that there are hundreds of thousands of indian international students and you know dependents and and over the course of many years that's a community but there is no one looking after their welfare and interests and so that's where in many ways the nasau was born out of adversity which is someone needed to fight the good fight for international students so a bunch of us got together from across various universities and we thought well this is about consumer rights this is about human rights but most importantly this is about people and and stories and 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 really about helping uh, fellow students out so that's where it all started that was 2012 that we sort of conceptualized the union and and sort of got our act together and and it's about a decade later now and you know we're still going strong fingers crossed um we're present all over the country in all four parts of the UK we also have and this is this is an entirely voluntary initiative so we're all volunteers um we're either students ourselves or alumni ourselves people who have studied or are studying in the UK as we speak um and because we're all either students or alumni all of us do this part time um in our own sort of voluntary capacities so it's it's a completely philanthropic effort um which means we all have day jobs as do I but that this is the story of how the nisau came about wow i mean that's amazing and inspiring i was wondering as you were talking so you had the idea your it was born out of necessity as you said um and before we got on the podcast i mentioned that it's about international educators and people who are changing lives and bending destinies and i was keen to have you on because i feel like this uh nisau has has done that has changed lives and and bent destinies for so many indian students in the uk throughout the years can you tell us a little bit more about those early years and some of the activities that you did some of the events that you held things that nisau really got its teeth into in those early years to change those lives that you said you saw that needed help people that needed helping or students that needed assistance what did you do in those those early years Yeah, do you know no one's actually asked me this question in a while so you're really making me go down memory lane and and I appreciate that because I think partly what we did was to talk about the issues was on the one hand to be people who these impacted students could approach and actually first of all lend a listening ear and and understand what they were going through and give them the opportunity to talk about their struggles because I think partly there was no one for them to speak to or certainly that was the um that was what we was hearing so it was in part about listening to them and then looking around and finding solutions so partly it was who can we connect these impacted victims to um who would actually be able to provide them the sort of professional guidance that they needed for instance in the united kingdom as as jessica you will know we cannot actually give immigration advice unless you are a qualified you know let's say oisc authorized lawyer or otherwise authorized lawyer so in some cases it was about 
you know, providing any informal guidance and advice and, and, and help we could, and then linking them to professionals who could actually take their cases up, be it pro bono, be it at discounted rates. Um, so it was that in part. Partly it was also looking at raising the cases with stakeholders like politicians, like across the ideological and political um, spectrum. It was raising their cases with the Indian High Commission in the UK so that they could take it up at a diplomatic bilateral level. Because of what, what we found was that because these cases were appearing all of a sudden in isolation, disparate spread out all over the country. It was really about bringing it all together and presenting in, in a way to all these stakeholders that would really make it real for them so that they could understand the sheer devastation and the scale of devastation that was being caused uh, on people. So there was a bit of, I guess there was a bit of how do we help individually the people who are approaching us? Well, let's give them some help and some informal guidance and then some more formal signposting to those uh, professionals who can help. In some cases, it was also mental health help that, you know, we would signpost them to. Half the time, you'd find that actually students don't really know what rights they have or the fact that, you know, and it was about educating them, even even in some cases, redirecting them back to, you know, organizations like UKISA or other welfare organizations or, um, you know, the Citizens uh, Advice Bureau, for instance. So it was a lot of that, which frankly, did we even in our own capacities know very much of it? Not really. So it was a bit of a information gathering exercise for us as well. So there was, there was how do we help individual people respond to individual circumstances on the one hand? There was then this whole lobbying, policymaking, uh, you know, advocacy work in if for lack of a better word if i if i put it in that umbrella and then the third was you know not all was not well because you know there were many students also having a good time so it was about how do we you know it was about simple things like diwali is a very famous indian festival which everyone will celebrate the festival of lights rather than 10 universities who are all very nearby organizing something separately, why don't we all just club our efforts together and organize something mega and really bring about a sense of community and collaboration, reduce duplication, reduce inefficiency. So there's also some some fun stuff on the side. So really, those were some of the early things I think we did. And I think one thing we understood very quickly was the power of the media, was the power of escalating issues in particular ways through the media to bring it to wider notice. So I think it was it was a combination of all of those um in in very naive innocent ways that we explored and 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 dealt with. <laughs> wow. Um son of hats off to you. That is just incredible and such commendable work. You know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the 2010-2009. We had some similar issues here in the US with uh some fraudulent universities and putting a lot of students uh, in harm's way. Um, that was actually some of the genesis for me starting my company as well. So a lot to kind of reflect upon, but that's for another day. I I'm more curious a little bit more. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you. You said you're from Delhi. Uh, you did sixth form, but then you went to college at LSE. Uh, you work, obviously, you have a full-time job. So tell us a little bit about that journey. I would imagine when you're in high school, you weren't thinking that someday you're going to chair or start or found a, a national organization to help students. Um, so maybe walk us through your own personal journey of your education. What did you think you're going to do when you grew up? What do you do right now? Again, you know, I, I actually really appreciate this question. It was 
I don't think I ever thought I would be doing any of what I'm doing. I, at school, I was definitely, you know, someone who was smart. So I would get through, you know, in, in India, we have this thing where um, you have to be an A grader, right? You just have to get, you know, 99 is not good enough. Things are changing. But <laughs> if, I, if I can interrupt for a second, I do want to, you You mentioned that twice now about being a smart student. And when you got to LSC, you weren't a smart. I do want you to comment on that as well. Well, at the risk of, you know, being being labeled as discriminatory, all the Chinese were there and they're just too smart and they're just so hardworking and so diligent. And and I and true story, I turned up at the London School of Economics not having a clue of what I was going to do or career-wise not having any idea of what words like internships meant. And, you know, I, I kid you not, we had... Very, very hardworking Chinese students, some of who have come gone on to become best friends of mine. And they were there from day one preparing for their spring internships. And then they had a plan laid out for their summer internships. And then for the graduate offers they would get thereafter. I was sat there not knowing what, you know, the eye of investment management would look like or meant, which is what I do now in my day job. But it was it was really quite extraordinary to to think you you know, you come from a culture that is quite hardworking, quite ambitious, but actually then the beauty of the LSE or, or the international education in this case was the ability to to learn from each other and, and really to be able to absorb some of that incredible way of working and culture of working. So, so yeah, so that's sort of, uh, you know, the LSE journey. But yes, I, I was smart enough that I would always get my 80%. So not much of a fuss would be made at home about the fact that I was bunking most of my lessons at school or, you know, I'd be found on the basketball court when I was supposed to be in math class. So, um, so I, yeah, I would never, I was good at debating and good at drama, but I would never see myself as someone who was particularly going to do any of these, let's say, leadership roles. Um, but I think that changed again with LSE. And I think the LSE played university specifically, uh, you know, generally, but LSE just specifically just gave me wings that I don't think I could have had anywhere else. You know, it was it was the ability to be able to get into a student society, get really ambitious, want to become president, fight those elections, and then really to be able to think about, you know, how do we bring everyone together? So I think it was really... And the support structure provided by the LSE, you know, the fact that they would at that time, you know, give funding for student events and stuff like that was really helpful. And I think um, university was by far the best thing. And I still think to this date, and, and you know, I work as a consultant, I'm, I'm a strat consultant on the investment management side of the world. Sometimes I still look back at some of the dissertation and, you know, coursework they used to give us at LSE, and I still think it was harder. <laughs> than some of the projects I do at work. And that's saying something. So it was a great challenge, but I also think it was, you know, the wings that really fueled um, both ambition as well as empathy um, for people. And and so that's, yeah, that's sort of the background. Oh, that's brilliant. I mean, that's the power of international education, right? And that's why we do all the things that we do to encourage students to get out and get those experiences where someone like you sitting at a basketball court in Delhi, skipping classes, uh, doesn't, doesn't know the potential in them uh, until you're actually put in those situations. So, yeah, again, brilliant work. Well, no disclaimer to everyone listening, though, don't skip classes, particularly <laughs> when you're an international student, because then the home office will not be very happy. <laughs> 
So I'm keen to look, we were talking about your past and Nisao's past. I'm keen to look at the present, um, the organization now, how is it, you know, how has it grown? How many members do you currently have and, and what do you do? I ask only because I know I saw on LinkedIn, you and I are connected on LinkedIn and I saw photos of a recent event that you had a gala evening dinner with awards. So tell us a little bit about how Nisao, Nisao has evolved over the years and what it is you're currently doing. It has certainly grown leaps and bounds, fingers crossed, and we're very lucky to have had the support of pretty much the whole of the international higher education sector in the UK as as we've been on that journey. But we we continue to do a lot of what we did back then, just at a larger scale where we're impacting a lot more people. So on the on the one hand, it is direct student support, which is any student or alumni who studied in the UK can reach out to us for any sort of help they need. Where it is something we can directly help with, we often do that. Where it is, again, something where we need to connect them to someone else who can better or more appropriately help. And usually we're able to use the value, you know, the, the power of uh, volume to be able to cut costs down or make you know services entirely free then then we then we do that for instance you know we can connect them to immigration lawyers we can connect them to accommodation providers we have partnerships with indian banks where for instance students can open their bank accounts before they've even arrived in the uk and when they arrive in the uk they have a ready bank account so things like that we you know facilitate across the student chain uh, life cycle even from when they're prospective students um and that you know thousands of students will avail of those services over the course of the year at a micro level it's any individual student needing help so often we can go fight with universities for them so we work with universities we fight against universities when there are relevant cases at a more sort of large-scale activity when COVID hit, which was quite devastating, the first wave in the UK in particular. We were one of the first organizations to put up a 35-member team. Again, we're all volunteers, so this is an entirely voluntary effort where I think we counted, we started tracking KPIs, frankly, Jess, and and it got up to 200,000 people impacted. And beyond that, we were like, we can no longer track this because it was you know, thousands of people being provided either directly or via other organizations uh, with food, with groceries. It was, you know, many people impacted who did not have uh, accommodation or were facing issues with their landlords. And it was just hundreds of thousands of people who needed access to critical information that was dynamically changing on an almost daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day. So you'd have some part of the Indian government issue an advisory, a legal advisory in legal speak, or or the British government or some airport or somewhere. Regulations would change, but actually students wouldn't really understand what had happened because by the time they'd, you know, gone through the previous God knows what language legal speak is written in anyway. So we would often take those and convert them into simple bullet point English, which I know was then seen by hundreds of thousands of people, not just students, wider members of the Indian diaspora, for example. Uh, we worked with the Indian government very closely on the largest ever repatriation mission in the world, which was called Vande Bharat, which is where we actually, every night, my guys, our, our team would sit down and we would prioritize those cases who needed to be sent back home first. Um, so, and that was us, you know, trying to help the Indian government because obviously the, the scale of the issue was just too much. So we worked with the Indian High Commission in London quite closely on that. Um, so, so that's sort of one 
bracket one umbrella of our work which is student support um whether it's covid whether it's otherwise and actually i was very very honored to be able to do this recently where when the ukraine crisis hit we were able to help nearly 5000 indian students stranded in the ukraine war remotely through our volunteers working here as well where in, for instance we you know on the one hand we were speaking to students who were walking through these war zones you know with bombs going on in the background and you know they're walking hundreds of kilometers the real heroes i think of tragedy here and you know guiding them and just talking to them just connect- and and on the other hand you know my team was speaking to their parents and families back home in india because half the time phone lines wouldn't go through so it was partly providing moral support um and and sort of where we could you know connecting people providing guidance of you know where they could go from from spot a to spot b and it was also you know we supplied the coordinates the geo coordinates for nearly 5000 of them to to the indian government so that rescue missions could be planned appropriately so partly i now feel like we're becoming a disaster response team um <laughs> so um so so there is the sort of student support where we do what we can in whatever way we can directly there is also the sort of lobbying policy making side which is and one of the most successful campaigns we've ran in that space is the post study work we in the uk which you'll recall got taken away round about the same 20 11 12 time i think we ran a sevenish year long campaign to bring that post study work visa back where we literally uh we had a we had a campaign running a petition running called fair visa fair chance where we you know articulated our own version of what that visa could look like most of our recommendations if not all i think were accepted when the uk finally uh brought back the visa in the in the new guise as the as the graduate route which has incidentally led to i think a 6x increase in numbers of indian students choosing to come to the uk and i you know collectively i think the uk is now hit in part because of the graduate route visa our 600000 target by 2030 of international students we've hit that a decade early so so there is that element of policy making advocacy lobbying which we take up with from time to time as as things demand there have been other issues where you know we've raised sometimes we do this through the media as well where we'll raise our voice on matters for instance covid shield which is the astrazeneca indian version of the astrazeneca vaccine for the longest period of time was not being accepted as a um as, as a vaccine so we worked with you know we we raised that once we thought it was scientifically prudent to do so similarly you know taking in the off england's red travel list once we thought it was scientifically prudent to do so and and the evidence was out there so you know lobbying governments to sort of do that or or bringing those issues up in the media to to wider notice is is also the sort of thing we do and then finally we do pride ourselves in in championing india in the united kingdom we're not afraid of asking difficult questions because as as young people we do think it is our responsibility to hold elected officials to account but equally we feel that whenever an indian student goes outside india or an indian young professional we're actually representing brand india and we need to be able to be aware of contemporary india ourselves um so that we don't lose touch with india so that we're then able to represent india appropriately and so we will organize lots of conversations with leading thought leaders from india whether it's you know across sectors business leaders politicians government people um sports persons bollywood superstars what have you in in universities across the uk and some of our regular series of events are things like the india series at kings college london we hold the india conference at the london school of economics we have something called perspective which is our 
platform for democratic debate and dissent, which we rotate across uh, universities every year. So the last one, I think, took place at Warwick. It's these sorts of things we do as well. So um, again, it's all, you know, we have we have a team. There's, you know, volunteers that come and go every year because obviously of the turnover of students is, is a natural turnover. But then there's some consistency in our leadership team with, with some alumni as well um, and some PhD students, which we are very, very lucky to have. Wow. <laughs> you know, firstly, you're making me feel like I'm not doing enough with my life. I know. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I'm sitting here thinking, what did I do today? I threw some laundry in and I did a bit of work. I'm so like, sh- sh- uh, no. But, but, you guys uh, are <laughs> No, no, not at all. Not at all. I think credit where credit is due, right? So yeah. secondly, I'm like, you know, how are you squeezing more than 24 hours out of the day? Is there a secret that we need to know? That's the second thing I'm thinking. But the bigger question I have, Sonam, is I don't like, I'm just listening to you going, this person should not be in investment banking at all. And, and so I guess my question to you is now that you really built this organization and doing so many wonderful things. I cannot think of a single organization in the U.S. uh, Forget about just focused on Indian students for any demographic of international students that addressing so many things at so many different levels. So I'm wondering when can you start a U.S. chapter of this, right? So we could talk about that. (laughs) But I want to talk, I mean, my comment earlier about I can't see you as an investment banker. Uh, What are your thoughts? Like as you look look ahead for the rest of your career and life. Is there a thought of, you know what, maybe I should quit this investment banking thing and go into this full time? You are too kind to to say that. And I very much appreciate it. I think, you know, to be fair, investment, I'm on the buy side, um, which is less brutal than the sell side. Um, (laughs) So it's, it's the nicer part of investments, as we like to say. But I, I honestly feel that the skills and the experiences on the investment side um, are actually, you know, although they sound like an entirely different world, but there are so many transferable skills and, and experiences and ways of working that you learn so much from both worlds, actually, that you then take into the other, which is something I've felt quite privileged to be able to do. So yes, it it does squeeze time, but we are quite lucky to have a lot of volunteers and, you know, we all just chime together and, and get things done when they need to. But it's 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 interesting to have a capitalist mindset while trying to have uh, an educator's heart. Um, so that that combination is definitely interesting. But hey, you know, even in our world, we're all about ESG now. Um, you know, it's it's we're looking at, you know, how do we how do we look at responsible investments as as you know, the next the next generation of of investment management. And it's all about there is to a large degree a chunk of good governance and you know environmental consciousness and responsible leadership so even even there some of my work is around diversity and inclusion some of my work is around um you know how do we ensure investments are sustainable for you know for our for our end clients and for our end investors in the world more generally some of the pieces of work i've worked at for instance include um something called the assessment of value which the financial conduct authority in the uk made us all do where every fund manager actually needs to assess what value they're providing and publish publicly what value they're providing to investors. So those are the sorts of things we've had the honor of working on. And I think ultimately I'm driven by 
responsible leadership and and outcomes for the end client or the end person whether it's a student or whether it is the investor so i think when you look at it from that perspective maybe this dichotomy of investment banking versus education can can be can be resolved yeah yeah it's still it's still i don't know i don't know if it quite aligns but i see what you're saying i see what you're saying um i'm trying to sell it to you jess you're trying to sell i know i had a feeling that was what was happening that's a good sales job you did there right i'm I'm thinking about you're running a, a, I guess, a volunteer organization. Running a volunteer organization is probably harder than running a company that's a for-profit company with employees, right? Yeah. I absolutely believe in that. So, hundred yeah, yeah. percent. I I can't disagree with that. It's um, but I am privileged to have a really good team, and you know, it, this is about passion. This is about, you know, and and you'd be surprised with passion seems to drive more than money and i think i i would say that at least if my contemporaries or you know people younger generation you know whatever the gen y or z or whatever is now coming out i think they're all quite switched on and quite willing to contribute and and maybe there is a certain i don't know not particularly religious but i am sikh and you know we're sort of brought up in a way of have to give back um so this is our way of giving back i guess and thinking back to when you came here all those years ago, came to the UK all those years ago for your sixth form college, and you're still here, do you think you're going to stay in the UK? You've Obviously, you have a, a, a good job, you're happy, you're well-established. Is this some your, your new home, or do you have a hankering to see other parts of the world, travel a little bit, or go back to, to home as an India home? To be honest, you know, it's a... Uh... I think this is a question every immigrant probably struggles with a lot. I can see you smiling. <laughs> um, both are home. London is home. Delhi is home. And I, I I, do go back quite often and and spend as much time there as I can. You know, I think if I really don't know where, where you know, we will be in, in many years from now. But as it stands, London is home and, you know, just happened to live in the best city in the world. So... Uh, so <laughs> I think Sadiq would be very happy to to hear us have this conversation, Jess. But but yeah, London is home. So um, and you know I'm I'm quite lucky that my family is here now. So um, oh good yeah. I mean I think that's no, one I... of the things about immigrants, right? We we make home wherever we are, and that's yeah. one of the skills I think that helps us be uh, comfortable wherever we find ourselves. So exactly, and and I feel too. I mean, obviously I'm not British, but here I am. For me, I used to get so scared of that where is home question because I'd kind of freeze and not really know how to answer it because I've moved around so much. But you become adaptable and there's so many things that you learn from being somebody who's always the new person or always out of their element that you become somebody who thrives in being uncomfortable and being out of your element, I guess, in a way. Yeah. yeah, and I, and I think that is also the beauty of international education and working and you know being in this space is is it makes you resilient and it makes you adaptable and it makes you quite I think it really upgrades your neurodiversity and therefore your ability to to take some of the decisions that otherwise you know you may not have had the perspectives to be able to do so because you haven't been in those situations you haven't seen how different people react to those scenarios which is why when anybody talks about 
you know, cutting the numbers of international students or changing policies. I'm like, come on, this 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 goes against every possible neurodiversity outcome you could think of. And, you know, but gosh, that's a whole different world. <laughs> I see. I see politics in your future. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a question for you. Maybe I just ask you to offer some advice. If I was a high school kid right now, uh, I don't care where, just let, let's say a high school kid in Delhi, thinking about a, a college education, uh, maybe even thinking about studying overseas. What would you advise them? If I was in India, and if, if this student that I'm advising is in India, or indeed in any of the other countries, which are typically seen as source countries for, let's say, for the Western world or for, for other universities worldwide, I think the one thing I would urge them to do is not blindly want to go abroad for the sake of wanting to go abroad and not following, you know, the the marketing Instagram reels and, and, you know, shenanigans that are being thrown at them from every direction. I think there is an information overload um, in terms of um, marketing to students. And it's really not, I, I would really urge them to find a mentor or a guide that can really help them think about what kind of career they want to build and what kind of life they want to build. The two are not the same, as many would otherwise have one believe, and actually work backwards from that's the kind of life I want to build for myself overall, or that's the journey I want to get on. Those are the experiences I want to have. Ultimately, it's about feeling fulfilled because I think a lot of students, what I'm seeing is that they're coming, they're doing courses that some agent somewhere told them to do because it would it would be easier for them to get into that university or you know it'd be good for quick fix to get into that country. But actually they they'd end up feeling really unfulfilled within a year or two years of graduating or even while they're studying. And you know, it's it's a waste of your parents' money. It's a waste of your time and resource if you ultimately aren't happy. And so spend that much extra time outside of Instagram and outside of TikTok and more on, you know, really thinking about what kind of life and career you want to build. And there are so many online tools for that as well. So really, I just urge people to sit back and value themselves a bit more than than what they're valued by an agent as yeah, 100%. Most excellent advice. Thank you for putting it so succinctly. You know, I travel around the world talking to students, and I'm always challenging them to stop thinking about what they want to do for the rest of their life, but rather think about who they want to be for the rest of their lives. And I think that's Thank the you. way you explained it. Absolutely. Uh, listen, we could have this conversation for hours, looks like, about a bunch of different things. We probably will get you back another time. But let's uh, try to wrap up here for the hour. And like I said, we always do a quick fire, lighter round just to kind of get to know your personal side. Um, so I'll go first. Uh, you mentioned London is the best city in the world. I disagree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you were to travel to a place in the world, what is your top destination that you haven't been to that you'd like to go visit and why? You know, I really, really want to visit Thailand. And the reason is not going to be anything impressive other than the fact that I love getting massages. And where else would you go? 
than to Thailand. Um, now that might be a downside of being a banker because you know you you always need them. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it is not a particularly smart or intellectually kick-ass answer. But yeah, that's that's where I want to go, guys. <laughs> Have you, have you considered, okay. considered Kerala with some Ayurvedic massages just in India? Yeah, yeah, that's that's next on the list too, but um, for sure, sure. Is that where you're from, <laughs> by any chance? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm from the best city in the world, Bangalore, so. <laughs> ah, lovely. Okay, my quick fire question for you is, um, so like you, my home is is elsewhere, and when I travel back home, I know what I like to do first thing. When you travel back home to Delhi, what's the first, you get off the plane, what's the first thing that you want to do or see or eat? There's a lot of things that I definitely do the minute I get off. But, you know, the first thing I I genuinely like to do is um, there's a place called Bangla Sahib in Delhi, which is the Gurdwara in Delhi, which um, no matter what time of the day or night you go, you'll be served warm food. And, you know, you can, there is just a sense of, again, this is not coming from a particularly religious space, but from a a space of spirituality and a space of just feeling so happy. You go to that place and there's some a vibe there or some sort of, you know, it's a really happy, really satisfying feeling. So one of the first things I definitely do is is get myself over to Bangla Sahib Gurdwara in Delhi. And also, um, you know, you can't really be a Delhiite until you go to the right places and get your fix of butter chicken. So that's the other must-do, immediate focus, priority activity. <laughs> All right. So I am assuming of uh, the time that you do have for yourself, you you read. So I'm kind of curious, like your philosophy of life is really intriguing. Obviously, it's been influenced by a lot of your experiences and, and whatnot, but I'm sure there are things you've read that have given you some things to chew on and, and to develop your sense of self, your purpose, etc. Name one book or an author, anything that you've read that our listeners can go check out? You know, this is the one thing that I love I could do more of. I wish I had the time, um, but I certainly find myself lacking in this particular department. But recently, I have gotten myself in love with one of your professors in America, as it happens to be, this gentleman called Scott Galloway. Oh, Um, my God, yes, uh, (laughs) Professor Professor you know, he just moved to London. He lives in London now. Oh, my God. Oh, my That's God, you made my day. Oh, my God. I am going <laughs> to hunt this to man down. <laughs> <laughs> so I am now obsessed with Prof G. And I, you know, the last book I read actually was something he wrote about the world post-corona, where he speaks about how he expected the world to really change post-corona, both from a commercial standpoint, but also you know it's 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 amazing how he brings reality and perspective to all of these very big fancy strategic commercial discussions and and his you know his his insights and and forecasts about how the world is going to change and which company to invest in and what not to invest in and what's going to come down would be it's amazing how he makes it real and very sort of human um so prof g is someone i read a lot and and his podcasts are incredible as well so prof g is 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 my guy 
Well, Sanam, this has been an absolute pleasure to have you. And, and thank you for taking time of your very busy schedule, I'm sure, to do that. I just think you need to do more with your life. Don't you think, Jess? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot missing. <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm kidding. But hey, I can't imagine the impact you've had on so many students' lives who've left home, traveled you know, thousands of miles, and have just no clue. I, I wish... Uh, Nisa was there when I came as a student 30 plus years ago. I really could have benefited from it. So thank you for all the good work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's an honor and a privilege, guys. And, and thank you for your time and for having me here today. It's been real fun.